Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back a few weeks to March 16, 2023, for our in-person event with American businessman and politician Dave McCormick. Mr. McCormick served as President Bush's Undersecretary of the Treasury for International Affairs and served as the CEO of Bridgewater Associates, one of the world's largest hedge funds from 2020 to 2022. He joined us at the Reagan Library to discuss his newest book, Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America, which is Dave McCormick's vision for how to unlock America's full potential for greatness. He sat down in conversation with Reagan Institute Director Roger Zakheim. Let's listen. Dave, welcome. It's great to have you here at the Reagan Library. Congratulations on the book, Superpower in Peril, A Battle Plan to Renew America. You are running for the Senate. You were CEO of Bridgewater. When did you write this book? I feel like it came out right afterwards. <laughs> well, first of all, thank you, thank you for having me. Thank you all for coming. It's uh, really just an honor to be here. And uh, just sort of uh, when you walk through the halls and you, you think about Ronald Reagan and, and that legacy, you just think about leadership and, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and the exceptionalism of America. So it's very, uh, really an honor to be able to talk about the book here. But, uh, but James and I started the book uh, a couple years before I decided to run for Senate, is the short answer. And the motivation for the book was a belief that America was slipping away. It was in decline. Economically, from a national security perspective, spiritually, America was losing its way. And 80% and of Americans agree that America is going in the wrong direction. And so uh, we started to think about that question, what to do. And uh, you know, decline's not inevitable, but neither is renewal. It depends on what we do. And so we thought about it and decided to write a what to do book about what to do to bring back America and, um, and, and renew America. And uh, uh, it's a very ominous color, <laughs> a very ominous cover, uh, because we are at a, a really a challenging inflection point. But as I think Roger would agree, it's a very optimistic book. Uh, because there's a path ahead. Well, I, I want to talk about that path ahead, but first we're going to deal with the ominous, pessimistic <laughs> beginning because we need to understand it. And, and you begin the book actually talking a little bit about your Senate run. And I'm curious, since you had your mind made up and you started the book before you ran for Senate, when you're out there in Pennsylvania, going across all those counties, speaking to all those people, did it reinforce your sense that Americans think that we're in decline? You know, it really did. So I, I was a CEO of Bridgewater, as Roger said. I, I resigned from that to run for the Senate in Pennsylvania. And, and Pennsylvania is a wonderfully diverse state. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot like America. So you have a very rural, um, conservative parts of Pennsylvania where I grew up, and you have urban areas and less conservative suburbs, still Republican. And so it's a very uh, amalgamation of lots of things. And the thing that struck me, I, I have a pickup truck. I have a family farm, the pickup truck. And I drove 30,000 miles in, in five months. And, um, and the thing that struck me most was the anger. Hmm. People were so angry. I couldn't, I couldn't really get over it until I started to spend time 
and diners and VFWs and fire halls. And they're angry because the last 20 years have not been good for them. Uh, they've not been good for them. So uh, we have a 40-year high in inflation. Uh, we have a record high uh, debt. Uh, we have a fentanyl crisis in Pennsylvania, which is killing communities. We lost 5,000 people in Pennsylvania last year. Uh, we have uh, you know, record high fuel prices. We have crime in our cities. And we have the, the looming threat of China. And uh, if you held assets in the last 20 years, if you had a house or money in the bank, you got a lot richer. But if you were living uh, month to month, you didn't get rich at all. Real income stayed flat. And by the way, most Americans don't have assets. The majority live month to month, six, something like 67% live month to month. And so that anger, um, and then by the way, there's been 20 years of war, um, which has drawn disproportionately from those working class communities, working class families. So they're angry because the American dream that many of us have been blessed to live has not been available to them. And they don't believe their kids are going to be as well off as they are, which is kind of my definition of one sentence of the American dream. You believe your kids have the opportunity to be better off. And so that was the thing that struck me. And, and they're deeply worried about the direction of the, of, of the country. And, um, and that was a further motivation to, boy, I better, I, I, I wanted to win that Senate campaign, obviously, <laughs> but once I didn't win that Senate campaign, so I want to finish this book because everything I saw on the campaign trail really reinforced Well, it. we here at the Reagan Foundation, we know it takes time. Uh, you know, for example, Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, but he wasn't elected in 1980. You know, <laughs> right. the way that people think about it in terms of Reagan giving his time for choosing speech and those ideas playing out uh, a decade plus later. You know, one of the elements of the book um, is, is your biography, how it folds into this, into this story, which has many policy prescriptions and addresses these issues of decline. Um, and you go back to your childhood, actually, and, and you look back at Jimmy Carter um, and the kind of the, what you characterize as the crisis in American confidence. Talk about why you look back to that moment in the late 70s when Jimmy Carter is president, and then, of course, the namesake of, of this library uh, in terms of what Reagan did and how that uh, kind of impacted your thinking and policy prescriptions. Yeah, well, the. Um the experience Roger refers to. So I've had two renewal experiences in my life. Uh, one of them was uh, coming back from the army. I uh, went to Pittsburgh, and Pittsburgh, you know, had sort of been driven by steel and industrial, and, and had gone through a really rough period, but was starting to come out of it in in the uh, in the in the 90s. And I was I ran a technology company that was part of that renewal. But the thing that really gave me optimism and hope when I started to think about our current moment was growing up in, in the 70s. And uh, I remember, like it was uh, yesterday, like 1978, 79, I was 14, 15, and uh, it was stagflation. Remember, it was like the double, it was 15%, 16% inflation. Uh, the economy was in recession. Uh, we had uh, fuel prices that were going through the roof. Uh, remember odd days and even days? Okay, odd days and even days. So uh, I remember, uh, who remembers the Country Squire? That station wagon with wood sides that was like, my dad had the Country Squire, we'd go wait in line for gas. And there was Desert One, where uh, the, uh, Jimmy Carter sent the, uh, the military in to try to rescue the hostages. We lost eight service members on the, on the sands of Iran. A lot like, reminds me a lot of Afghanistan uh, more recently. And 80% uh, of Americans thought the country was heading in the wrong direction. 1978, 79, in my hometown, McGee Carpet Mill, laid off a bunch of folks. That was a main employer in town. 1983, 
Four years later, I'm a plebe at West Point. And I'm walking down that beautiful pathway in West Point, the Hudson River in front of you, those beautiful mountains. America's back. Four years later, America's back. The economy's on fire, inflation's in check. We're investing in the military. You could feel the pride, the confidence. Six years later, the Cold War ends. Four years. And I'm not just saying this because I'm at the Reagan Library. Ronald Reagan and leadership, more important leadership, changed the direction of our, of our uh, country. And, and I, I talk a lot about that in the book because it's kind of a leadership book as much as a policy book because leadership is the difference between decline and renewal. And uh, while the exact same solutions that Ronald Reagan proposed aren't the right solutions necessarily for this moment, the kind of leadership that Reagan provided is what we need for this moment. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons uh, it's an optimistic book, because that's the American story. We get to the edge of the cliff, we pull ourselves back. And I lived through one of those, and many of you did too, and so it gives you confidence that we can do it again. Let's talk about the second moment you were referencing before where you know, you were born in Pittsburgh, then uh, moved elsewhere in Pennsylvania, but come back and uh, you were in Pittsburgh where Pittsburgh transformed. And there you kind of get into some of the themes that I think are relevant to the policy prescriptions in the latter half of your book in terms of what were the elements that made Pittsburgh, uh, which was this kind of suffering in post-industrial town that lost all the jobs, to now was a center, kind of merging hub of innovation uh, and, and success. And you were part of that with a, with a company that you ultimately ran. Yeah, well, the, uh, you know, if you look at American history and economic growth and vitality, uh, productivity has been a key driver. So the way that America has continued to be economically viable, the reason the American dream has continued to be the promise that's delivered is we keep innovating. And, uh, and so Pittsburgh was in this, uh, in this transition. And uh, when, the time, when I got there, I got there in, in 96. And so it made real progress uh, changing the economy from the steel industry, but it was still struggling. And I talk about that, uh, that transition, that renewal, by describing the runs I would take on weekends. Yeah, your jogs are right. all your, right. So, uh, so I lived in the east end of Pittsburgh, and uh, I would run. I'd run up in Shenley Park, and you could look down on the Monongahela, and you'd see the old, uh, where the steel mills were, the remnants of the steel mills. And then I'd go up through, the, through, the, uh, uh, through Oakland, and you go past University of Pittsburgh, which is now a life sciences center, and uh, Carnegie Mellon University, where you have huge government R&D, which has been a driver of robotics and artificial intelligence, and all those things, and that's created tech workers uh, that have driven a new economy in Pittsburgh. And then I go up through the Hill District, and anybody remember Hill Street Blues? Well, Hill Street Blues was in the Hill District, and that's a part of Pittsburgh that's sort of been left behind. And the transition that's happening uh, in Pittsburgh is the transition that needs to happen in America. And I talk about uh, the things that need to happen in terms of educating our people, in terms of investing in research and development, in terms of technology leadership, in terms of data, which is, is really the, uh, the, the argument I make for innovation now. And, and, and if you're going to argue what the book is in one sentence, the book is essentially to renew our country, we need to educate our people, we need to confront China, and we need to secure America. And the book is organized around those themes and the policies to do it. Now, one of the things that come out of that experience, and then when you, when you go into government during the, the, uh, the Bush administration, is kind of the piece of the economy that were left behind. And you just talked about data and technology. Um, but the manufacturing piece yeah. uh, really didn't get replaced. It actually went 
overseas. And that was something that you saw both in the private sector, in government, and, and you, know, you emphasize that in, in a number of places in the book. What about that workforce? How did, you know, what did you kind of observe in terms of how we lost that element of our economy? And then you're thinking in terms of what it takes to get it back. Well, the, the, you know, sort of looking back what's happened, and I try to wrestle with this as someone who's been a conservative my whole life, and so, not my whole life, but uh, once I started to start to think about uh, things after, after the Army, I, I would say I was pretty agnostic when I was in the Army, kind of like George Marshall. He didn't really have a, a pick a party. But um, the thing that I always believe was small government, capitalism, free markets, uh, those would be good things for American economy. Therefore, they'd be good for America's role in the world and America's strength. And when you get into these communities, you realize, well, wait a second, there's another side to the story. That it hasn't been so great for them in all the ways that, uh, that I was just describing earlier. And so I try to wrestle with, okay, how does it make sense? Because if you pr pursue that free market orthodoxy, where are we today? Well, if you think about our pharmaceutical supply chains, which uh, we all learned during COVID, uh, they're dependent on China. I actually didn't know that until we went through COVID. Can you believe that our pharmaceutical supply chain should And then you say, well, semiconductors, are, they're like the thing that makes everything work. Like the reason you can't get a new pickup in Pennsylvania is because the semiconductors uh, supply is limited. 90% of the semiconductors in the world that we need are manufactured 90 miles from mainland China. Uh, China has built you know, 30 new fabs last year. We haven't built any. How could that make sense? Right? And you, so you start to think, but wait a second, maybe we've been sleepwalking a little bit. And so what, uh, what James and I try to do is we try to say, listen, we're, we're conservatives. We're proud conservatives. Small government, capitalism, uh, free markets drive good decisions, uh, good allocation of capital. But the system's not working in certain places. So we need to adjust. We need to decouple strategically from China and bring certain industries home. That's good for our workers here at home, but it's also good for our national security. We need to do something a little different to make sure we lead in technology because uh, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about, Roger, but two weeks ago or something like that, an Australian think tank just did an analysis. I thought we were going to talk about the profile about you and the Wall Street Journal. No, we're not weekend. talking about no, that. I, I, okay, that was so, on uh, my mind. So uh, the 44 technologies that are most significant for economic growth and national security, this Australian think tank evaluated China is in the lead of 37 of the 44. Now, how can that make sense? So uh, what, I, what we tried to do was say, hey, listen, we're strong conservatives. We believe in the power of markets. We believe in small government. But here's places it's not working. Here's places where it's not delivering on the American dream. Here's places where we're vulnerable to China. And let's put forward an agenda that makes sense for all Americans. And, that, uh, and this, so there's an, ex an area in there is a, if, you're a, if you're a strong conservative, you, you ask yourself the question, what, what would Wilton Friedman think and, uh, on, on economic policy? So there's a section there, for example, where we say, what would Milton Friedman think? And uh, he wouldn't like some of the things we recommend. Which and, you say, and you, yeah. actually, you said you actually he would agree with you if he knew the situation you're He, he might, with. Because, because I don't think Milton Friedman would have had good answers right. to our current moment. And so, anyway, that's what the book is about. It's about saying, okay, we need to look forward. We need to renew America. And the old ways of thinking about things, we need to adjust. So we need leadership, we need to look forward, and we need a plan. And that's a lot like Ronald Reagan did in his, in his day. Uh, you mentioned China a couple of times. Let, let, let's focus on, on China because that comes out throughout the book. And, and one of the things notable about your career, and you, and, and you write about this, is that you were thinking and experiencing China before it kind of became uh, you know, the cool subject to discuss. Everybody nods their heads and says China's a problem. You know, when you were dealing with China 
back in the Bush administration, perhaps before, but that's, that, that's a recall from reading the book, you were seeing some of the trend lines, uh, and you had a response, a role in the Department of Commerce, perhaps you can talk about that, where you, you had the responsibility to figure out what should and should not go to China from a technology standpoint, perhaps other uh, uh, areas of trade that could be relevant to our national security. Um, others kind of joined in the course later on, but you were kind of uh, going against the current back during the Bush 43 yeah, I was, administration. I was certainly wrestling with it. My, my first introduction to China was right after the Army, uh, where I traveled for a year, or close to a year, and I ended up in China. I read this book, just, I was just by myself, I had a backpack, and I read this book called R Riding the Iron Rooster by Paul Thoreau. And it was about him going through China on these old dilapidated, dilapidated trains. I said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that. <laughs> and uh, it was, un Ch China was rural. Then you go into the main cities, there's just a few buildings and a few uh, skyscrapers, rather. And I'd go running in the parks in the, in the morning, and there'd be the elders out there doing Tai Chi. I would be the only Caucasian person. I mean, I was like a, you know, I was, it was like a, I was like a celebrity. Everybody stopped and looked at me because I was an American running through the park. And, um, and I went back 15 years later as the Undersecretary of Commerce, and it was dra dramatically different. We came, came in on the government plane, and we did a go into Beijing, 10 lanes, and there's skyscrapers everywhere, cranes everywhere. And the question before us was how to make sure as China grew and developed that it would be in a way that was advantageous to the United States. And my job was to monitor the technology that was being shared with China, exported as part of our industry because everybody wanted access to China's markets. And then I had a job in the Treasury where I was dealing with the financial piece. And two things became apparent almost immediately. One, that China was really wanted a lot of our technology and was stealing a lot of it. There were a huge theft of intellectual property. So you were seeing that back? Absolutely, the, it was okay. a huge, Before I gave speeches on it, we wrote, I wrote uh, articles on it in the newspaper. There was a huge intellectual property theft, but there was also, uh, it wasn't illegal necessarily, but they would have industries come there and they would essentially take the technology on site and that would be the beginning of their own indigenous industry. And, uh, and then they put huge state support behind it. And so overnight, China has become, in a matter of a few decades, a technology juggernaut with this techno-authoritarian model. The second thing that was clear from the, from the, you know, almost from the beginning is it wasn't reciprocal. And this is where I give President Trump a, a lot of uh, credit because the deal wasn't fair. In other words, U.S. markets would be open to Chinese companies, but Chinese markets wouldn't be open to U.S. companies. And all of this became apparent over time where the U.S. interest and China's interest diverged and then President Xi came on the scene in 2014 and went like this. Because President Xi had a much more aggressive view of displacing Ch uh, America as the global superpower. And so when I talk about uh, the superpower being in peril, it's in peril from within because we're losing sight of the American dream and it's in peril from the outside because we have a unique challenger that in many ways is far more formidable than the USSR was during the, the height of the Cold War. Because yeah, they have the economic power that the Soviet Union never uh, reached. Let, let me follow up on, on, on President Trump there. Uh, your book, you kind of have a complicated relationship with President Trump. Um, on the China piece that you just acknowledged, he got it right. Um, what else would you have done besides what President Trump put in place? Which of course, tariffs were a uh, primary uh, kind of policy tool he employed. Uh, the national security challenge uh, he emphasized 
Um, and do you see that being well, sustained I th I think today? What, he, what, what President Trump started to do was turn the ship. And we started to talk about uh, China not as a competitor, but as an adversary, which is what it was. And we started to talk about China challenging America on every front with its alliances around the world. By the way, it's not a, it's no, it's no, uh, it's, uh, shouldn't be a surprise to you that China has partnered with Russia, as an example, right? That's not accidental. That's a very intentional thing. So diplomatically, economically, militarily, technologically, China is challenging America uh, for leadership on every front. And we need to have a whole of nation strategy for dealing with it. And that's my, that's, didn't President Trump started to turn things. We haven't had that under President Biden. And so that's what the book argues for. And we essentially say we should do four things. We should strategically decouple. So we need to think about the industries where we just simply can't be dependent on China or probably anybody, but certainly not China, maybe some of our closest allies. Semiconductors, artificial intelligence, telecommunications, satellites, pharmaceuticals. These are obvious things. We need to bring those things home. The second thing we need to do is hold China accountable for bad behavior and call out bad behavior. Let me give you a couple examples. There's the human rights uh, abuses, which we're tiptoeing around, and we, and, and, and we need to call those out. There's COVID. So this is baffling to me, but it seems pretty obvious that if you had COVID originating in Wuhan, where there's a lab that studies such things like COVID, that there might be a connection between those two things. And to get to the bottom of it, and also to make sure you have vaccines and everything else, you need to cooperate. That's not happened at all. There's been no transparency. We haven't had any engagement from China on COVID, and yet it's been a cost of trillions of dollars and millions of lives to the world. That's, that's a problem. We need to hold China accountable for that. The third thing we need to do, as I say this here in California, is we need, to, we need to stop having companies invest in China in ways that directs, directly supports the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese military, the PLA. So in the Silicon Valley, to this very day, there are firms investing in artificial intelligence companies in China that do business with the Chinese military. It's exactly counter to our interest. And so we need to have a review process in place that reviews outbound investment to China and doesn't let us do let, uh, companies do stupid things. They should know not to do that anyway, but let's put clear parameters and clear roadmap. And the fourth thing we need to do is we need allies. We need allies who we, we are, work in concert. We have common interests, Japan and Australia and, and many, many others. But the, I say those because they're in the Pacific. And we need to have rich uh, partnerships that advance our common interest. And, uh, and that's the path. And so that's the argument I make in the book. And uh, I think uh, in dealing with China, we need to be first and foremost strong. So we need to have that way of engaging with China, but then we need to go to the gym at home. So the book is an agenda for going to the gym. So what are we doing? We gotta fix our education process. We need, we need to get our kids learning about how exceptional America is, not that America is a nation con conceived in, in, uh, in, uh, in evil. Uh, we need to teach an honest reckoning of American history. Uh, we need to fix our teachers' unions. By, by, say fi by fix, I mean get rid of them. Um, we need to get skilled training for our workforce. Uh, we need to um, build up our military. We need to fix big tech. So there's a whole agenda of things that we need to do, which is under the, uh, under the uh, direction of muscle building, right? We need to build muscle at home. And all of that's necessary to renew the American dream. More from our Reagan Forum with Dave McCormick after this message.
The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Dave McCormick. One, one piece, we go back to your uh, China set of policies. I think the third one was talking about investment in China and, and, and the economic relationship. You know, this is personal for you. And, and when you left the Bush administration and you, you uh, joined Bridgewater, huge uh, investment uh, hedge fund, a uh, number of their investments were in China. And, and you write about how you, you kind of wrestled with this. Even the founder and you had perhaps two divergent views. How did your time looking and working on this, uh, on this issue kind of shape your thinking about, can we really, as you use this word, decouple, separate um, between you know, the United States and China as it comes to this economic uh, interaction and interdependence? Yeah. Well, it's, it's a really good question because uh, it's very difficult to decouple from China completely. And so that's not what I'm arguing in the book. I'm arguing that we need to uh, change our economic relationship with China in a way that's much more in favor and advantageous to, to America, much more in line with our interests. But you have the two biggest economies in the world. And we're very entangled in many ways, both what we would do directly, but also what we do through common trading partners. So I think there are some that are arguing we should completely sever any economic. We didn't even do that during the Cold War right, with the Soviet right. Union. That's not the argument I'm making. I'm making the argument that we need to be very uh, incisive about how we approach this, very thoughtful and comprehensive. Uh, and Bridgewater is, a, is a, the firm that Roger mentions. I was the CEO of that for a number of years. And we had about 2% uh, of our assets in China. We, had, we managed $160 billion, and we had I don't know, four or five billion dollars uh, that we managed uh, or invested in China. I take two percent. That yeah, sounds like a lot to me. That's, that's a lot, and uh, and people would ask that on the campaign trail, and uh, and it, was, it became an issue on the campaign trail. And I would just try to describe it. It's the be benefit of a book because a campaign you get thirty seconds, a book you get a little bit more if, if people read it. But um, you know, thirty percent of most of your homes um, have products from China. So in other words, if you go to your home right now, 30% of the products in your home will be made in China. So we are deeply entangled. Uh, and so now the question is, how do we deal with the risk to our economic well-being and our national security? And I think to do that, you need people that actually know something about national security, know something about economic policy, have actually run businesses. And so when I was on the campaign trail, um, and in the book, I present myself as someone who actually knows a little bit about this, and here's a plan that I think could serve America well, and we need to move forward on it. You have a, a really great anecdote. Maybe it's a good, good point to tra transition the conversation to the military, your service in the Army, where you're, you're getting uh, some pushback from voters in Pennsylvania exactly on this subject. You know, you're okay. kind of CEO, not kind of, are a CEO of a of, of big you know, uh, financial outfit. Uh, what are you doing here in Pennsylvania? You know, how can you talk to you know, kind of the the, the blue-collar worker, and then 
you start talking about football and West Point, and all of a sudden there's, there's a connection and you transcend yeah. it. And, and that, if I recall from the book, gets a discussion about our institutions yeah. and how we need to restore institutions in this country, kind of like the way the military uh, is, is, is a revered institution, and that kind of is a, is a pathway to unity and strengthening the country, yeah. which is another one of the key pillars in, in your yeah, book. Yeah, we have, we have so much in common. So now that I totally ruined yeah. that story, you can no, no, I'll tell it, it I'll and, tell and, it. and say uh, what it was like. So, uh, you know, de Tocqueville uh, uh, traveled across all of America, and, he, and he, the thing he talked about were these institutions whether it were these little community centers, the fire halls, the churches, that they bind us. They bind us together. And uh, I talk a lot about sports and growing up in Pennsylvania playing sports, wrestling and playing football. But the, but the story you're actually talking about, so I, during the campaign, uh, President Trump, uh, I was r running in the primary against uh, Mehmet Oz, Dr. Oz, the, the television uh, personality. Nobody's heard of him. They don't watch him. Never heard of him. <laughs> you might have heard of this guy. And, uh, and President Trump uh, endorsed him. And then President Trump took, took some swipes at me. So the, uh, the thing that uh, Roger was talking about was there was a, uh, a meeting, a Republican breakfast in uh, Adams County, in, uh, Get which is near Gettysburg. And so I uh, drove to that one morning for this breakfast. And I had been to Gettysburg a number of times over the years. But the one time I went to Gettysburg, I was in the 82nd Airborne Division. And we, had, uh, we would have these uh, officer retreats where we'd go to a battlefield and walk the battlefield, and it would be a way to learn what we could have done, and we'd go through Civil War and battles and revolution. Like a staff ride, right? It's a staff ride. Staff ride. Yeah. But because we were a paratrooper unit, we would parachute in to the place we were going to do the, this thing. So we had arranged for a farmer's field in Gettysburg where we would jump in, and I was, um, you know, you can't tell who's who, so I coordinated that I would be the first one out of the door. So my mom and dad lived nearby. I said, mom and dad, here's where I'm going to be. So you'll see it's me when I jump out, jump out of the door. And so. Uh, How do your mom feel about that? that well, <laughs> it, it gets worse because, because I, the farmer's field, the jump master gives me a slap. I jump out, and I'm over the field. And then the guy jump, who's behind me jumps out, and I see his feet going across the top of my parachute, and my parachute collapses. And, uh, and there's a few seconds, and then he bounces off, and he goes different way, and my parachute redeploys. And I land, and I pick up my parachute, and I run over to my mom and dad, and just both of them, tears. Uh, it's a disaster. Well, I couldn't tell from the book. Did they know what was going on? Yes, they, they knew oh, everything, because okay, cool. I was the first one out. So, um, so I tell that story at this, Adams, this very hostile group in Adams County, and it totally, like, everybody, you know, warmed up. And they warmed up because everybody knows somebody in the military. In the military, at least in that part of Pennsylvania, it's not always the case in Pennsylvania, but the military experience brings people together. That common experience, and I've said this uh, many times, like I was in the 82nd for f almost five years. I had a, you know, a, a white kid from rural Alabama. I had a, a, a black kid from Newark. I had a Puerto Rican platoon sergeant who was 35, and I was 22, and he seemed like he was 80, mm -hmm. and he would try to keep me on track. And I never remember in any of those, I don't remember who was what. I don't. I was. I don't even know if somebody was a Democrat or Republican. We were just in it together. We were a team in support of America and trying to be patriotic. And uh, and so that those bonds, whether it's on football fields or whether it's in the military or whether it's through national service, um, are are part of what's missing because we're becoming more and more fragmented. And I think social media and lots of other things are contributing to that. And while um, we can't send everybody to the military, I'm not proposing that, finding ways 
to create those common bonds, I think are what's necessary for our Republican Party, but also for the country abroad. And I, I try to make that point. Yeah, and, and, and that seems to be a, a critical piece in terms of the renewal and the recipe to get there. You also talk about how Pennsylvania seems to have great quarterbacks. You didn't, didn't entirely persuade me on that one as, as a place, but uh, it seems to be convenient for a football yeah. fan uh, from Pennsylvania. Um, one other piece here that deals with this renewal is the language you use to talk about, uh, you're talking about data, and we have to be leading data, but you don't just say leading, you say we have to uh, arrive at supremacy. That's, a, that's like a, a Reagan word to me, because President Reagan, in, in the context of the Cold War, wanted supremacy economically, militarily. Um, tell us about why you choose, choose the word supremacy and, and your optimism, your, your belief that this actually can be done. Yeah, it's a, it's a good example of where the solutions in President Reagan's day are completely different than now. But, um, but the now is that data is a huge strategic advantage for who, who has it. Um, there was an Economist uh, cover or article uh, last year that said uh, data is the new oil. Right. It's not quite the new oil. Um, that's, it's strategic like that, but the difference between data is you can use it over and over again. And data is at the core of innovation. So if you think about what's happening, it's happening so fast that none of us can keep up with it, but data is being used, this most uh, new thing with chatbot. These Data is being used in ways that we would have never imagined years ago. And so who owns the data, who controls the data, um, who uses the data to pursue innovation will determine leadership economically, national security-wise, and so forth. And we don't have a plan for data, and China has a plan. Uh, and China has, because it's an authoritarian government, it has control of everybody's data. And so if you think about the COVID vaccine, for example, one of the reasons we were able to move so quickly on, on generating vaccines was because the pharmaceutical companies came together and shared their data. So data is a superpower. Data is necessary to be a superpower, and we don't have a plan. And so there's a chapter in here where I describe, and by the way, data can be dangerous right. because we've lost our privacy in data. Now, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I order a pair of sneakers online, and then for the next three weeks I get advertisements for also, it, it may kind of, it may, it's eerie, right? Because there's a lot of people getting your data, selling your data, having access to your data, and God only knows what they're doing with it. So we need a combination of, of protections to make sure our personal data is our data. We need a series of guidelines to be able to draw our data together with our, in our country and our allies to be able to use it to our advantage. And then we need to take care that social media, and this is one of those places where I'm very anti my normal conservative leanings, where I usually say less government better, on big tech, I say more government better. Hmm. And the reason I say that is that I think big tech, in particular social media, is contributing to a lot of what's wrong in America these days. It's, it's very one-sided. I think the evidence is pretty clear on that. It's, it's compounding on a narrative uh, that's giving people a misplaced sense of what's really going on. And it's, and it's really uh, distorting and I think eroding our kids' uh, sense of, of reality. And so. I'm not for the government getting in the middle of deciding whose kid gets to look at TikTok. What I am in the favor of is the government putting more liability on the social media companies because right now they're not held accountable at all. So there's a whole chapter on that. We need to think about data. Uh, I, I would go so far as to say that having a plan for data would be one of the top three most important things that the next president should think about. 
and, and just one quick follow-up on that. Supremacy, what's your, why do you feel that the United States and our free society, open society, could actually outperform the Chinese where, you know, they can just do this command and control and what they're doing and, and just sucking up all the data whenever they can get uh, without asking? Well, it's a little bit like why I believe in capitalism versus state-owned enterprises. It's because, just like I don't think the Chinese economy over time will allocate capital as well as um, we'll allocate capital in our, in our system and we'll get more innovation and more betterment for society because the private sector allocates capital, I feel the same way about data. So the way we need to have our data strategy is not to have top-down control of our data where we're directing, the government's directing what to do, but we need to have standards in place that the data is available for entrepreneurs and innovators in a way that advances our society and doesn't uh, use it at the expense of people's privacy. And so our data structure has to be very different than theirs. They have an advantage because they have maximum control, but we have an advantage that left to our own devices, the American entrepreneurial spirit, its pursuit of liberty and all that will always out-innovate right. if given the opportunity. So the system, we just gotta, we gotta set it up so the system can actually allow exactly. us to prevail. Um, I want to talk about immigration. Um, big area of focus in terms of the renewal, the part of the battle plan here is talent. That our economy really needs to uh, benefit from talent. Part of the education policy, which you referenced before, but part of it is bringing in talent from across the world to help us achieve these objectives. Uh, immigration is, is, is broken in the United States. Illegal immigration, of course, is, is something that Republicans and the Congress right now are, are, are most concerned about. Voters are concerned about. And then you're talking about, okay, legal immigration. How do you balance that? And, and, and how, what, what piece does immigration have in terms of this, this priority for talent? Well, it's, it's, a, it's, a, very, you know, it's a very controversial issue, as, as all of you know. And I really invested a lot of time into the second part of it during the campaign. I, I had had my views on legal immigration, some of the things need to change. Those have become more informed by running for office. But the thing that became much more informed was the impact of illegal immigration. And I think it's a mistake for those who say, well, we gotta fix that illegal immigration problem, but let's, let's first, let's get to this skilled immigration thing. And we'll as a political matter, that's not possible, but as a, as a matter for our society, I, I don't think it's appropriate either. Because the and you saw that on the campaign trail. Or? I saw on the campaign trail because I went to the border. I went to the border and I saw the border. I did the with the border patrol. The president of the border patrol took me along the border. I talked to farmers. I talked to business people. I talked to the border patrol. Like I saw it. I talked to the local sheriff in Yuma. I mean, I saw this for this myself. Is the Pennsylvania New York border. You wanted to make sure those New Yorkers didn't get into Pennsylvania. No, I, no <laughs> close, close. And, people, and it's a good question. Why would a guy running for Senate in Pennsylvania go to the border? And uh, the answer was, well, first of all, everybody kept talking to me about it. Everywhere hmm. I went, people would say the border. And I would say, why do you care about the border? Well, fentanyl. The fentanyl crisis, which is a, a huge debilitating thing to our economy, uh, starts at the border. Because what's happening is the Chinese are manufacturing fentanyl. Many, much of it is now manufactured in uh, Mexico. And it's coming across the border uh, through the cartels. And the more porous the border is, the more the fentanyl comes across. And it takes about two days from the fentanyl to cross the border and make its way to New York, Pennsylvania, and so forth. Route 80 goes right through the town where I grew up, and, uh, and it's a big deal, 5,000 mm -hmm. people. And I would go into every little uh, town, and I'd say, 
How many people here had somebody in their family or, or friend group that was affected by fentanyl? You'd always get a bunch of hands. And the 5,000 are just people that died. Those aren't the people that are addicted and all the other stuff. So it is a big deal. So we've got to, we've got to in a very forceful and thoughtful way, stop that. Um, it's bad economically. It's bad um, for all sorts of other reasons in terms of what it's doing for drug trade. By the way, the human exploitation that's taking mm. place, it's terrible. I literally sat there on one side of the border, looked across the Rio Grande, and you could see the cartel guys up in the bushes sending people across. It, it is beyond uh, anything. So this is I'm not a guy that I'm saying, watch this on the news. I went and saw it, so I'm speaking with some credibility. But you have to stop that in a way that um, is, is clear and appropriate, and then you have to also recognize the fact. No, well, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I'm to follow up on that. Yeah, well, you have to recognize the fact that uh, immigration is also a core part of our democracy, a core part of our society. It's what, you know, the fact that uh, our, our country is a nation of immigrants. My wife is an immigrant from uh, a Coptic Christian from Egypt, and her family was persecuted, and uh, her, their religion was persecuted. She came to Texas so she could practice her Christian faith. I mean, it's what makes America great and the vibrancy of America. So now how do you do that when so many people want to get into America and you can't have all the people that want to get into America legally come in? And so I think there needs to be real reforms uh, on our immigration system to have a more merit-based, merit in the sense of certain types of expertise, certain types of skills, and think about it holistically in terms of the areas that we need people to support our economy, and also people that are refugees and so forth. So we have to think holistically about it, but uh, we don't have that today. And so we need to do a real reform of, of, of our immigration system, legal immigration, lean it more towards the skills that we need that, that won't be displacing American workers. By the way, that's the argument you hear on the campaign trail. If you let people in, they're displacing American workers. I don't really think that we, I think we can have a reform of our immigration system that actually fills the skills areas that we, that we need. And there are big gaps. I saw that all the time on the campaign trail. At the same time, you can't even have that conversation until you decisively, decisively close off the, the open borders. And, and I think that both need to happen. I want to talk about what decisively means, and, and I'm going to bring in President Trump on that in a second. But I, I know you went on the tour today. Uh, on this point, I don't know if you noticed, but outside uh, where President Reagan's office was in this library, you have uh, paintings. I forget the name of the artist. I'm sure somebody here knows of uh, images of, of immigrants come through Ellis Island. And, and, and kind of the, going through the front door, and obviously something that President Reagan celebrated and, and, and thought contributed to the beauty and, and great heritage of this country. But in terms of illegal immigration, um, you know, there's a, a reporting, I think it was in Mark Esper, um, sec, former Secretary of Defense for President Trump, that President Trump contemplated taking uh, military action in Mexico against the cartels. This is beyond the purview of your book, but. You are a national security expert, so I want to get your take on that. You raise it. And then uh, Trump's former attorney general, Bill Barr, recently wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal also saying that we need to con consider using uh, military action to deal with the cartels. This is beyond simply building walls or dealing, getting you know, uh, immigration reform. This is saying this is a national security threat to our country. I'm curious, how do you respond when you hear about what President Trump is contemplating or Bill Barr is advocating today? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to taking a much more aggressive posture on the cartels. I think they pose a really serious risk. I've seen it firsthand. I think there's enormous amount of evidence. There is a precedent um, with Colombia yep. and, uh, and, and U.S. forces being used uh, to combat the drug war in Colombia in concert with the Colombian government. 
Um, there's posse comitatus, which puts very clear limits on using the military for domestic things. So it has to be done carefully, but I, I, uh, I think it's a national crisis. And I think that taking decisive action is a necessary part of solving the problem. And, and the right policies, obviously. And I, I have a difference, I differ greatly with the, the way President Biden has approached it. So I think there's a policy change, but there's also, I think the, and I think a lot of serious people are debating how we can best use the military to, to stop what is a, a, a really dangerous assault on America. I mean, amazingly shocking, two days from the time across the board can get into you know, a state right. like Pennsylvania. Um, in a few minutes, uh, we'll, we'll go to questions from the audience. Uh, but I would love for you to comment. You begin your book, and it surprised me, um, reflecting on the campaign and Donald Trump's role in, in the campaign. Uh, and you tell a story of how uh, you were really had an opportunity to win. And uh, President Trump hadn't endorsed anyone at the time. And you heard he might be endorsing your, your opponent, and you have a conversation with him. One, why did you include that in this book? Uh, I mean, I guess inquiring minds wanted to know. I certainly found it provocative. I was turning the pages, interested in it. But two, uh, more broadly, what did that teach you and kind of your relationship with President Trump and how, how it all uh, finished up with your uh, Senate run in terms of where the Republican Party is today mm -hmm. and what the, what the Republican Party needs to do uh, to win and get back majorities in the, in the Congress and ultimately get the White House back? Well, the, the story you're referring to is uh, it was I was a newcomer to politics. I'd never run for office before, and I came into the race very late because uh, we had some health issues in our family. But when I came in, I, I got off to a good start, and I, uh, Dr. Oz was, was one of the uh, obviously one of the other uh, opponents. Uh, but I, I started to go up in the polls, and I was winning in the polls pr pretty substantially by maybe eight eight or ten points or something like that, and. Uh, I, there was always been the notion that um, President Trump was going to endorse Mehmet Oz because they had known each other and they had houses in Florida together and so forth. But I was hoping that President Trump would stay on the sidelines. And, um, and, and I knew President Trump. He had asked me to be Deputy Defense Secretary when, um, when he had become President. And, uh, and I knew him for a number of reasons. And so I, uh, I called and asked if I could come see him at Mar-a-Lago. And I, I went and uh, uh, he, had, he said yes. And I went down and I... I uh, talked to him in his office, and he, uh, he was disappointed that there was a couple things I had said when I, when, uh, after January 6th and after the election about polarization. I had said, they, the interviewer had asked me whether I thought President Trump had contributed to the uh, polarization of the country. I said, I, as a leader, I thought he had contributed to it. And, uh, and then President Trump told me he thought I couldn't win. He, he had the videotape. Yeah, he had the videotape. No, he pulled <laughs> yeah. up the videotape, yeah. He was ready And for he this. told me he didn't think I could win unless I said the 2020 election was stolen. And, uh, and I said I, I, didn't, I, I couldn't say that. I said I couldn't say that. And, uh, and so I left, and, uh, uh, and, he, and the next two, two days later, he endorsed uh, Dr. Oz. But then I was still winning uh, in the polls, and then about 10 days out, he came to Pennsylvania, and there was a, uh, he did a rally where he, uh, you know, he, he, he was pretty tough uh, against me, uh, you know, sort of a-, a You were at that same area, right? The I was in the same area. I was in my pickup truck coming back from an event. I turned on the radio, and, uh, and I'm driving along, and all of a sudden- Raining. Yeah, it's a great raining. story. It's like it's muddy, it's dark. By. I'm in the pickup going back to Pittsburgh, and I hear you. Dr. Oz is running against the Wall Street globalists. I'm like, uh-oh. Uh-oh, this is a surprise. So, um, so anyway, that, uh, that uh, ultimately 
became a, a very close race, a tight end at the end, and Memedaz won by um, 900 points. Now, th that story is- 900 votes. 900 votes, rather. Yeah. And the reason that story was important is I th uh, a couple reasons I started with it. It reflects, I think, the, the debate within the Republican Party about the future of the country and the populist pulse that we have and the reconciliation with traditional conservative uh, policies and principles. And I think it's a good debate because as I tried to convey here, I think the people that say the system's not working are right. Like there's a lot to argue about. And so what I try to do in this book, Superpower Power, is lay out an agenda that reflects, hey, the system's not working for a, on a lot of different aspects. Traditional, the traditional conservative, you know, country club, lower taxes, small government, it's not working in certain areas. So we need to think about what this moment requires to deliver the American dream for everybody. So that's one of the things. And President Trump, really uniquely channeled in 2016 that anger and frustration that the party, it wasn't working. It wasn't working for a lot of Americans. A lot of working Americans are not, not getting the America uh, they were promised. And so that was one reason I talked about. The other reason was it came full circle at the end because then I was in a recount and I saw up close and personal um, how dysfunctional our uh, electoral processes are, at least in Pennsylvania. So, yeah. I mean, it was unbelievable. So there's 67 different counties. They all come in differently. You know, I thought I, I thought they told me I, I had won the night of the election, and then it, I, I didn't win the night of the election, but I was going to win in the recount. The Secretary of State told me I had, there was 30,000 uh, outstanding ballots. There were only 10,000. I was winning disproportionately in those. There were ballots that got lost in Philadelphia that then reappeared. And none of this, in my opinion, this was a Republican primary, so I don't think there was something grand it was just dysfunctional. There's no voter ID required in Pennsylvania, so you could just show up and vote. So um, people are skeptical and losing trust. Th there's good reason to, to worry about our electoral system. I experienced it firsthand. And at the same time, I thought it was really important for me to look at the numbers and say, you know what? I, don't, I, don't, I think I lost this thing. And then concede and step, step up and say, hey, listen, I lost. And even with President Trump coming after me, I mean, when you lose by 900 votes, there's like 100 things you could have done differently. <laughs> and so I accept responsibility. There's a lot of things I could have done and won that thing. And, uh, but we need to fix um, the uncertainty in our electorate. People need to have confidence. Uh, and so what do we need to do to win as Republicans? And, and uh, to your final question, I think we need to look forward. Hmm. I think we need leaders uh, who look forward and lead the country for I don't think we can win looking backwards. I don't think we can win on grievance. I think we need to win on solutions and ideas. I think we need to be tough and call out and hold accountable, uh, if, if you believe like I do, that the progressives are taking the country in the wrong direction. You have to call that out and say, hey, this is a problem. This is not working. But you mostly have to look forward with solutions and, that solve inflation and solve fentanyl and solve uh, the, the threat from China. And I think if we have good, good, and that's what I'm trying to do here, good solutions, good plans, good leaders, we're going to win elections, and we're going to take the country in the right direction. And that's uh, good, that's the good, good. That's a good theme there. Um, questions from the audience here? We ask that you just wait for the microphone. This gentleman over here in, in the white. Thank you. Are you going to hold it? Okay. Um, I haven't read your book yet, but it's be being delivered to my home as we speak. All right. Thank um, you. And so perhaps your book covers this. Um, the United States trades with its adversaries more than any country in the world. Do you think if the United States became more isolationist 
and restricted trade that the U.S. economy could support itself? In other words, would consumers be demanding enough to keep U.S. citizens employed? I, I think, if I'm understanding your question, I think that uh, one of the benefits of our economy is the fact that we're an open economy that's engaging around the world. I think that is better for consumers, it's better for workers in the sense that, you know, the good workers in York, Pennsylvania who make Harley-Davidson's can export those Harley-Davidson's around the world and that creates jobs. Even and, in China, to his question. Even, even in China, to his question. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, on balance, good for America, good for jobs at home. I think the thing I'm trying to say in the book is the free trade orthodoxy that says open markets, trade, 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 without putting appropriate constraints on it is, um, is misguided. And there's two constraints I'd say, I'll be real quick. Uh, one is reciprocity. We shouldn't trade with people where, we, where we're open to them and they're not open to us. And I think that's the concept that President Trump came back to, and he, he was right in my opinion. I just think some of these adversaries need to earn the right I agree with to that. trade with us. Yeah, that, that, may, that may well be the but, case. China certainly lose, lost the right to trade in lots of areas. I believe, I, I believe you're right, sir. Let's get uh, one more question. Gentleman over here in the black, please wait for the microphone. Just following up on your comment about we need to look forward, with all the possible presidential candidates coming up, who would you think would put forward a platform that more closely aligns with what you're espousing? You know, I, I honestly don't know. Um, I'm, I'm excited that we'll have a really a great primary. Uh, there's, you know, uh, obviously a couple people in now, but I think more will come in. I know a number of those uh, candidate or prospective candidates. I think they're extreme, and the existing candidates. I think they're super uh, talented. Lots of great experience. Just think about our field of of candidates, possible candidates on the on the Republican side versus the Democratic side. I think it's, I think we're we're blessed, and I think this is a moment for a great debate, and I hope uh, I hope we'll see something forward-looking emerge. I, I selfishly think this is a good plan, but you know, obviously others will have their, their views. But um, that's what I think is, is required. And you know, it's, it's, it's academic to say that, but I felt it in my heart on the campaign trail where people are like, man, we need, we need to look forward and we need answers. And so um, we'll see who it is, but I'm hopeful. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Dave McCormick. Thank you. And congratulating thank you for him being on his great book, Superpower and Peril. Copies of Superpower and Peril can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make from our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores. 
and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday. Like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.